In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today is our last session in, on the Incarnation. So let me, at the beginning, summarize with you the first three talks. And today, hopefully, to be the easiest uh, part of the book. So in the first talk, we spoke about the first ten chapters, where St. Essentials was showing us why he wrote this uh, uh, book, or second part of his book, to show us the need of a savior. And then he showed us what was the real problem. So he showed us at the beginning that when God created all the creation, created them with what he called it a general grace. This general grace allowed every creation to come into being out of nothing. Then he said, but God chose man to be different. So he gave man a special grace or additional grace, by the words, according to the word of St. Ignatius, to say, from now on, you will have the image of God and the call to grow from this image into the likeness of God. But he gave him two things because of this additional grace. First thing, he gave him a law and a set place. So if you will keep the law, you will remain in a set place, and you keep the additional grace, which is making you in the image and likeness of God, and at the same time, it gives you the incorruptibility and immortality option. What happened, unfortunately, that Adam chose disobedience, so he, kicked, he was kicked out of the paradise, the place, and the image has been distorted in him, and this additional grace was distorted as well in his life. So this is the first 10 chapters where he is telling us what was the condition before the fall, and then the condition after the fall. Then he added, people can argue repentance is a key word. If he will repent, God will forgive him. He answered it in length in chapter 7 and chapter 8. He was showing us repentance can do at best. If I will commit myself to this repentance, I will not do it again. But still I have the consequence. The consequence has no solution. The if I will be able to stop sinning or stop doing this sin once more. So he said repentance is not enough because of the consequence and because at best it will make man not to sin the same sin once more. And the consequence was corruptibility and this, this will remain forever. Then in the second part, we were sharing more because he said there are two major issues in the fall of man. The first one is the restoration of the additional grace, restoration of the image and likes of God. And the second thing is, we lost the knowledge of God. That's why we started the second talk with uh, chapter 16, in which St. Francis was showing us the great two acts of love. First of all is to abolish this incorruptibility, and the second of all to show us and to make known once more for us the, the Father. Uh, so the first uh, 20 chapters or 19 chapters, he was telling us why we have two major problems. The first one, creation and fall and the consequence. And the second one, the knowledge of God. We need to know God once more. Last week, in talk three, he was showing us why the Son of God and the Son of God only, who has the image of God, who is the same essence of God to unite himself with our human nature and then to show us he is able by doing this to restore the additional grace with something else he called it in the week 
took the uh, grace of resurrection. So the grace of the resurrection restored to us the additional grace that we lost in the first day. Today, despite it's nearly uh, 20, 25 chapters, it has only one simple title. He was telling us at the beginning, he was talking to Jews and Gentiles. That's why there is a key verse, which is First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, to the next part or the coming part of the book. If we read the verse together, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Then everything in the next few chapters from 33 till nearly the end, he was answering this or uh, explaining in detail this verse. What does it mean that preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles? First of all, the Jews were or the, Jewish, the whole Jewish nation were waiting for a king, an earthly king to reign, to restore the kingdom of David and the city of David. To tell them that this coming Messiah is going to be humiliated and die on the cross, a shameful death of, of the cross, for them it's something stumbling their mind. So we'll find the first few chapters from 33, they're nearly 41, 42, it was showing them it is written in your books. So if it's stumbling to your minds, to your own personal expectations, still it's the reality that has been prophesied in your books. What does it mean then, the foolishness to Gentiles? Again, for Gentiles, he means here mainly the Greeks. In their mind, in their perception to their gods, they cannot feel, they cannot be in pain, they cannot share anything was the creation. So he was still showing us, even if this is the way you think, the Lord was essential for you in person that he will take this flesh. It was not shameful for him to take the flesh. He came into the flesh to sanctify the flesh and to sanctify the human being. So for them to see God taking flesh and being crucified, humiliated, it's foolishness. But for us, it is the power of our own salvation. So in the next 20 chapters nearly, first 10 is showing them it was stumbling for the Jews while you have it in your books and your prophecies. It's foolishness to the Gentiles while in your philosophy, you can sense this, but you reject it because your mind are darkened, darkened because you rejected that. So we'll start from chapter 33 and to see how he started with the Jewish people. So at the beginning of chapter 33, he was showing them it is written in your scriptures. He was, he was saying, these things, as we said, we'll say 33.1, so just to refer to the Arabic numbering if you would like to go back and read in Arabic. These things being so, and the proof of the resurrection of the body, and the victory wrought by the Savior over this being clear, Come now and let us also refute the unbelief of the Jews and the mockery of the Greeks. He was telling us this is an introduction. Why I have to answer and to release this stumbling block to the Jewish people and to this foolishness to the Greeks and the Gentiles. So to, first in chapter that I said, he's going to talk only to Jewish people. So he is focusing on the prophecy. I will just share some of them. 
because I'm sure you know most of them, but how he was refuting them from their books, this is the main idea. They are stumbled because you don't know your books. That's why as we are approaching the nativity, you will find one of the icons showing a door, uh, an ox, and a donkey beside the manger where Jesus is born. Why? With those animals, as Isaiah was prophesying in Isaiah 1, were able to know the Savior, and, and the Israelites were not able to comprehend, despite, you know, the Scripture, or they pretend and claim that they have the Scripture. So, chapter 33 and paragraph 3, he was saying, the unbelieving Jews have their rebuttal from the Scriptures, which they also read from beginning to end. And again, here he is warning me and you. Maybe I have the same scriptures, but I can see the beauty of Christ. I can see the acts of Christ in a personal way that he is working in me and for me. So he's assuring them, you have the scripture, and I and you have the scripture. But are we using the scriptures properly for our own salvation or to judge, condemn others, and not for me? So they own the scriptures, but they cannot see, as St. Paul was telling them, in Second Corinthians chapter 3, there's a veil. There's a covering over their eyes. They cannot see Christ yet. And simply every inspired book proclaims these things, as also the very words themselves are obvious. For the prophets previously foretold the miracles regarding the virgin and the birth occurring from her, saying, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel which is interpreted as God with us. So he was not showing them something new. It's the scriptures you have. Again, as if the Lord is asking me and you this evening, are you seeing the reality of the meaning of each and every prophecy? Are you seeing every warning in a personal way? Or still, it is not this. Or I'm trying to falsify the message I receive in the church every time, aiming or proclaiming myself, I know better. I know better than the prophets. I know better than the apostles who saw it. If we look to Acts chapter 7, we'll find St. Stephen is preaching the whole Old Testament, but he saw Christ in it. If we read Acts chapter 2, we'll find St. Peter is again preaching from the Old Testament, and then showing them that now it's time. The Holy Spirit has come, poured out in our lives. Why? Because Christ was crucified and open the door for the Holy Spirit to come once more to live and to make each and every one of us a temple once more. So first of all, in chapter 33, it was showing us it's time to refute the Jewish people from their own scripture that they read it from beginning to end. Same chapter and paragraph 5, 33-5, it was telling us, that a human being shall appear then is foretold by these, and that the coming one is Lord of all these things again predict, saying, Behold, the Lord sits upon a swift cloud, and he will come to Egypt, and the graven images of Egypt will be shaken. Isaiah 19.1 from, For from there also the father called him, saying, From Egypt I have called my son. Of course, as an Egyptian or as uh, uh, the Pope of the city of Alexandria, he was showing even the visit 
to Egypt was prophesied and even was fulfilled. Prophesied in Isaiah, and the fulfillment prophecy was in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And then we read in Matthew 4, 2, 14 and 15 to tell us, from now on, this has been done. And St. Anastasia was telling them, you heard it, we saw it, experienced it, it's time to believe once more. Then he was adding, even his death was prophesied. In chapter 34, 2, marvel at the word, words love for human beings, that he is dishonored for our sake, that you might be honored. And then he was stating for us Isaiah 53, 6 to 8. Again, he was trying to make it more personified. He was dishonored for our sake that we might be honored. Again, when we see the cross, do we see his dishonor for my honor? Do we see his shame to convert my shame into glory? And then the church was singing the great song, Because throne us or your throne as an eternal throne on the 12th hour on the Good Friday. Tell us, here we can see our King of Kings enthroned not on a seat or a royal seat, but on the cross. Why? He showed himself dishonored to give us, for our sake, to give us this honor. That's why the church is honoring and venerating the cross because it's the way or through which we were able to receive this honor and this great uh, salvation from our Savior. Then he took it one by one. He was talking about the cross was prophesied again in Deuteronomy. But it's very important to see this verse, to see that he is telling us you will see life hanged. You will see life on the cross. So he's saying in 35, but perhaps having heard the prophecy of his death, you ask to learn what is indicated regarding the cross. For not even this is passed over in silence, but is expounded and great with great clarity by the saints. For first, Moses in a loud voice predicted, saying, You will see your life hanging before your eyes, and you will not believe your life. Back again to First John chapter 1. He was saying, and life was manifested. Life was not there. We were existing, but we have no life. Life took flesh to give us his life. That's why Deuteronomy, Moses was prophesying, you will see your life hanging before your eyes, and you will not believe. Life manifested, and now my life has been restored through Christ. Again, he's reminding them for everything, starting from Moses to Isaiah and all the prophets to show it's time to see what is hidden for, before your eyes for years. Yes, you read it from the beginning to the end, but still you are blinded or the veil above your, 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 your eyes and the covering is covering you from seeing the truth. Then he was adding, even the flight into Egypt was foretold and prophesied in chapter 36, 4. Then he added many other points. I will just share the titles of it because you can read it in the book without any problem. So he was telling them in chapter 37 how his hands and, and feet were pierced. Uh, he was quoting Psalm 22. And then in chapter 38, he was showing never heard of some of his miracles. 
So we never heard that a man who was born blind received sight once more. We never heard of someone who is dead for four days like Lazarus to be, to be given the power of life and to be risen once more. In chapter 3, sorry, chapter 39, was saying that Daniel prophesied about his first coming. If you go to the book of Daniel, he will tell, he will tell us and he showed from different verses in the census that Daniel was prophesying how the Messiah is coming, especially in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, how the old of days is going to come and he will be given uh, an authority and this authority will be an everlasting authority. Chapter 40 was prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem and accepting the Gentiles in him and through him. And this never happened until Jesus came by himself who united us, make us together one, as St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. So being in a Jew, it means you are required yes, to read the scriptures from beginning to end and to see Christ in each and every verse. If he was asking the Jewish people to see Christ in each verse in the Old Testament, how much more for us as believers in Christ in the New Testament to read carefully and thoroughly the Word of God, the Old Testament, and to see Christ in each and every verse, in each and every rites, if we can say it, in each and every sacrifice, to see how all these shadows of the good things to happen has been fulfilled in the person of Christ. Starting from chapter 43, he started to speak about, or to, to address his talk towards the Gentiles. So let me read with you uh, paragraph 4 from chapter 43. Being human, they will be able to know the Father more speedily and directly by a body corresponding to theirs and the divine works effected through it. So again, we are considering God to become a human being or to feel or to be mistreated as such is foolishness. But he was telling them, if you believe that he will, by being in the form of man, is able to show you how you can relate to the Father. He was able to show you how his act showing the divine nature in him. Yes, we believe he is one nature out of two natures, a divine and a human one. So he was adding, considering that the things done by him are not human, but the works of God. And if it were observed according to them, for the word to be made known through the works of the body, it would be likewise be observed for him to be known through the works of the universe. So if they cannot comprehend him by his work in his incarnation, some of them said we can see him in the creation, yes, but also you will be stumbled in the same way if you cannot see it as such. Then he was adding, in his talk to the Gentiles once more, he is in creation yet not no way partake of creation. Because their way of thinking, you could tell it foolishness, that how come God can be part of the creation? Yes, he took flesh, but he is not part of it. Now let us read it as a, uh, chapter 43 and paragraph 6. For just as he is in creation, he told us in the first 10 chapters, 
how he is a source of life of each and every creature. So he is a source of life, but, and this is his participation in the creation, not part of it. So for just as he is in creation, yet in no way partakes of creation. So it's not a participation in the creation, is the source of life of, the, of, of all creation. But rather everything partakes of his power. So if we have life, it's from him. If the land has life, it's from him. And so on. So on. Every creature has life in him and from him only. So also while using the body as an instrument, he partook of none of the body's properties, but rather himself sanctified even the body. What does it mean? Again, let me share with you what we shared maybe two weeks ago, the words of Saint Gregory of Nyssa. He was saying before the incarnation, the Son of God was missing nothing. After the incarnation, nothing has been added to him. So why is the incarnation? It's for you and for me. Who for us and for our salvation became man. So he was telling us he is the source of life of each creature. And by taking the flesh, nothing was added to him. Without the flesh, nothing was missing from him. So why he had it? So also while using the body as an instrument for my salvation and your salvation. He partook of none of the body's properties, but rather he himself sanctified even the body. So in chapter 44 and paragraph 2, he was saying why salvation needs incarnation. Let me read with you first, and then we'll see how it will work. He was saying, when nothing at all existed, only a nod, and an act of will was needed for the creation of the universe, which is very strange here. What was in the mind of St. Athanasius to present to each one? He was telling them, we have two acts now before us. One of them is the act of creation, and he felt and he explained it's very easy for God. He will say, let it be, and it will be done. But now, what came out of nothing has been distorted. So he sees the act of salvation is, in, is a need, is, or a, of a great need of humanity for the incarnation, why we didn't need it when he was created the whole universe. Let me read the paragraph first and to see the beauty of how it was important for God to save us even more than the creation because the creation was an act of his will. Just he said it and it became there. But now the act of salvation needs the incarnation. So here what he said, when nothing at all existed before the creation, only a nod, an action of will was needed for the creation of the universe. Just God was going to say, let it be light, and it was light. Let it be whatever, and it was created in it. But when the human being had once been made, and necessity required the healing, not for things that were not, but for things that had come to be. So now he wants to heal what is existing, not to create what is not existing yet. It followed that the healer and the savior had to come among those who have already been created. To heal what existed, he became a human being for this and used his body as a human instrument. Once more, 
chapter 43, the body became the instrument of healing. We see him in the flesh. We see him in the Eucharist offering his healing, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, salvation to those who partake of him. So now the body became the only instrument to receive healing through the incarnation of the Savior himself to come and to restore what we messed up. That's why his incarnation was to heal our wounds, not to add something to the second person of the Holy Trinity. So the instrument was his body and to heal those who have been corrupted and became mortal through it. Now he is talking again to the Gentiles of the Greeks who believed it's a foolishness for God to become man. He was showing them how it was a need for you and we need to adore what he has done for us. Chapter 44, he was saying, For once it had put on corruption, it would not have been risen unless it had put on life. This body has been put into corruption by the choice of Adam and Eve. So life has to adopt. Life has to incarnate. Life has to be in the flesh of corruptibility to be able to heal it for me and for, for you. So once it had put to corruption on corruption, it would not have risen unless it had put on life. And moreover, this does not appear by itself, but in the body. So he was telling them why he has to take the body, because this is in this body. So the healer, the one who is going to offer us the grace of resurrection, has to take this fallen mortal body and then to empower it, to change it, to give it a new ability that's not there, which he received it for us in his resurrection, ascension, and then he gave it back to us. So once more, therefore he put on the body that finding this in the body, he might efface it. Efface it, it means to erase it, to abolish it. To abolish this, he has to take the mortal body and to go through this, and as we said last week, we sang it in Christus Anesti, who trampled this by this. His this, you call it the life-giving this. For how at all would the Lord have been shown to be life if not by giving life to the mortal? He was telling them how he showed that he is life was he took this mortal body and was able to conquer this in him and to show him himself alive to many people around him. And during the 40 days, and as we spoke last week, the irrefutable proof of the direction that when we are risen with him in reality, in our deeds, in our actions, starting from our baptism and through the journey of repentance in the Eucharist. In the coming few chapters, more points for the same mindset of the Gentiles. The sign of the cross, in chapter 47, vanished the powers of the divination of magic. Many magicians in the church history repented and we knelt down before the power of the cross and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they left their magic life. So it's showing them, we have the proof. Among you, many people were living this life of magic and divination, and now all of them repented and surrendered to the Most High, our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 48, he was showing them the chastity of the virgins, many living very unholy lives. 
We have it in the church history, and we have seen it around them. How someone like St. Mary of Egypt lived and led a very sinful life. How St. Augustine was the same. This chastity is a power of his resurrection. A full restoration of the image of God which has been distorted through the sin. But when they received the power of resurrection, the grace of resurrection, this has been changed. Again, as I told you last week, the irrefutable proof of, of the resurrection of Christ is our newness of life. It's our continuous victory over every single thing against us. So in chapter 48, he was showing the chastity and the, of the virgins and the courage of the martyrs. How people were so young and they were willing to die, not sparing life, but knew, knowing the reality of assured resurrection in Jesus Christ. They are risen with him. They were risen with him in this life, and we are sure of his resurrection and their resurrection with him in the second coming. Chapter 49, he was comparing the, the, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ with any other mythology in the Greek nation or the Greek culture. And he was showing them none of them has been heard of as such. None of them was prophesied hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before his coming and was fulfilled in person in him. Not only one prophecy, but hundreds of, of prophecies. In chapter 50, he was showing again nothing like his resurrection. But now he's talking about his personal physical resurrection. We never heard of it. and We never heard of proofs of appearances. We have in the New Testament only 11 appearances. One of them is for 500, more than 500 people, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Then in chapter 51 to 55, we're showing us the acts and teaching of Christ changed the corruptible nature of the evil people and made them victorious over the temptation of the He gives a very long list of certain people they were known to all the Greek culture or the Greek community in Alexandria, and how this evil leads, how those evil people have been changed through what? Through the power of Christ, through the power of his resurrection, as a proof that this incarnation was real. God became man. The cause of the incarnation was very true, to conquer this incorruptibility and to make God known to us. And in the end, you receive a new, a new victorious life, day and night. So from chapter 33 till chapter 55, it was showing the Jews and the Greeks why the incarnation was needed. I hope that everyone of us will be able to go through it once more before the Nativity Feast, either in Arabic or in English. But again, this is a warning. He is putting it in the very last chapter. And it's a warning for me and for you and for every one of us. And it will remain true wherever you go, whatever you read, whatever you want to comprehend in your relationship with God. It's repentance. There is a need of repentance to be able to understand the message of God. Let me read with you only the first two paragraphs from chapter 57, which is the last chapter in the book. But in addition to the study and the true knowledge of the scriptures, and here he's emphasizing, some people are degrading the study, saying we are simple people. Yes, you are a simple person, but you are required to study. 
St. Peter in his second epistle, chapter 3 and verse 18, he was commanding us at the very last few days or maybe hours in his life. What is your last command for us? Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a command. Many times in the Old Testament, in Hosea, he said, my people perished because of the lack of knowledge. In Isaiah, he said, my people has been gone into captivity because of the lack of knowledge. So Saint Essence was saying the same. You have to study. But studying only is not enough. What is, ne- what is needed with this study? In addition to the study and the true knowledge of the scripture, it is needed a good life and a pure soul and a virtue which is according to Christ. Without it, you will buff up. Without it, you will be someone who knows but never come to the full knowledge of God. There was a warning in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, that always learning but never come to the knowledge of the true God. Why? Because it's just a mental knowledge. They are not seeking this good life, pure soul, and the virtue. And then he's adding, so that the mind guided by it may be able to attain and comprehend what, is desire, what it desires. As far as it is possible for human nature to learn about the God world. So we have a very limited ability and we can't comprehend the unlimited, the infinite God. But the more we are surrendering, the more we are humbling ourselves, the more we repent, he is going to open more of his mysteries to us. Without a pure mind and a life modeled on the saints, no one can comprehend the words of the saints. Again, without a pure mind and a life molded on the saints, modeled, sorry, in the, on the saints, no one can comprehend the words of the saints. It's a call of repentance. When we read the scriptures, it's a call of repentance to be able to understand and to walk in it. When we read the church fathers, it's a call of repentance. A virtuous life to be able to comprehend and to live what we live. That's why there was a warning in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. He was telling us six couples, or three couples, six titles of the Holy Spirit. The last couple was the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Knowledge alone will be boasting and puffed up and will be, it might end, to be totally far from God. But knowledge of God with the fear of the Lord it humbles ourselves before him and we will no more we live a virtuous life and our life will be glorifying him and we become real presence, a real temples of the Holy Spirit in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, wherever we go. So again, the call of the whole book, the call of repentance to be able to see the glimpse of the light of the incarnated world of God. May the glory of Lord Jesus Christ be with you from now and forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, my God, Amen. Father God, we thank you for the words of encouragement of Saint Ascensius to encourage us to repent, to have this virtuous life, to be able to see the glimpse of the light of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ to have the true knowledge of the Father and to know your Holy Spirit. 
to be sanctified more and more and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you for the words of our church fathers to be implanted once more in our minds. And we ask you, O God, the Holy Spirit, to guide us to the right humility, the right mind who will be able to comprehend, even impartial, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. We pray through the intercessions of prayer of Virgin Mary and St. Mark and St. Francis Apostolic. And we ask you to hear us when we pray to thank you, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, the kingdom come, that be the nice. Give us our day, give us our trespasses, as if it is And lead us from temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for the science of the Lord. And now the 